With so many headlines about the possibility of war in Ukraine, U.S. intelligence officials say Russia could invade Ukraine as soon as January. What could Moscow stand to gain from starting a war? An all-out ground war could also expand beyond Ukraine. It's easy to forget there is a conflict in Ukraine right now. I mean, there are entire villages, there are entire sections of that 400-kilometer-plus contact zone that are completely destroyed. It's fighting that's gone on for more than seven and a half years. The houses are shells, infrastructure destroyed, no regular access to gas, electricity. Whole areas are completely decimated. So what do the people living in the crossfire between Ukrainian forces and pro-Russia separatists think of the possibility of new fighting ahead with Russia itself? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Charles Stratford is the Al Jazeera correspondent who probably knows the most about what life is like in eastern Ukraine. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to visit eastern Ukraine on numerous occasions over the last seven and a half years. The Ukrainian army wouldn't let us film the tanks as they fired from positions above the bridge. A few days earlier, we had been in separatist-held territory and heard fighters using similar heavy weapons. Following Russia's invasion and annexation of Crimea in 2014, Russian-backed Ukrainian separatists captured large chunks of Donbass, part of eastern Ukraine. There have been numerous ceasefires since then, but fighting always erupts again. That first visit was, as you can imagine, during some of the worst fighting. Their windows blown out across the road from another building in flames. A woman's body lies amidst the rubble, the body of a man close by. But over time, he's gotten to know people well. It's been an incredible privilege to keep going back. We have a fantastic team who are very cool under fire, who get us great access. But sadly, since 2017, that access has been restricted to only the Ukrainian-controlled side of the conflict. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to let Charles tell you about some of the Ukrainians he's met these last few weeks. So yes, the town of Novelsky that we visited is on the Ukrainian side of the contact zone. It was 1 a.m. when the shelling started. Nelly and her husband were fast asleep. They woke buried under the rubble of their home. They were rescued by their neighbors. And it had been shelled heavily in mid-November. We woke and our home had been completely destroyed around us. I prayed that if we were to die, then please God make it quick. I have been in so much emotional pain. I wanted to die. We had everything we needed in life. Now it's gone. Daily ceasefire violations happen along the more than 400-kilometer front line. Both sides blame each other, um, and it was no different this time. Conflicting reports as to who started the shelling. So Charles and the team were left to figure it out on their own. Certainly, we saw evidence in the village of there having been Ukrainian military positions actually in and amongst the houses. The residents had said that since the shelling, the military had pulled back, but were in positions not too far away from the village. And it was a very, you know, very distressing scene. 
At one point, there were hundreds of people living in Novelsky. It was never bustling, but when Charles visited, it was really just elderly people left, and many of them were in the process of moving out. Considering what people like Nellie and her husband were living through, it's not a surprise. People were deeply emotionally traumatized by what they'd experienced. She broke down on camera and described herself as being in a terrible sort of emotional state. Ukrainian military positions. Of course, that has implications as to the safety of civilians. There were so few people still there. Most of the young people, certainly on the Ukrainian side, moved out of the, the immediate conflict zone. The elderly are there because they're obviously worried about their properties being looted. They refuse to move, trying to salvage as much of their belongings from their destroyed homes. The pensions that they're paid around about $100 a month are so paltry that they can't afford rents on, on other properties. Many of them have nowhere else to go. And many of them obviously have deep-rooted memories and lives in these places, no matter how dangerous they are. So the people that we spoke to were deeply distressed, very concerned about their future. For Nellie, though, there was some good news, a glimmer of hope. She described her relief about having transported her pigs and livestock that they had in the field behind their home, having managed to get the livestock taken away to a safer area. The bad news? This is just one of so many villages in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, facing this fate. Remember Charles mentioned that he and his team couldn't enter the other side of the front lines, controlled by pro-Russia separatists. That wasn't always the case. This was a village on the Ukrainian side of the conflict zone. And we know, having visited, although not recently, the separatist side, there are countless villages like that on the other side that have suffered the same over the years. And despite the Ukrainians saying that they do not use heavy weapons to respond, certainly that's not what the separatists say. Not a week goes by where there aren't reports of civilian casualties being reported by the separatists too. The security situation in eastern Ukraine has deteriorated with an increase in civilian casualties. Civilians are being killed almost every day. Civilians are being killed. You know, this conflict is affecting hundreds of thousands of people on both sides of the contact line. As Charles says, there was a time when Al Jazeera was crossing over to the pro-Russia side. That ended four years ago. In 2017, the pro-Russia separatists stopped us from coming across and, and reporting on their side. A lot of the international media suffer the same sort of restrictions. The reason that they gave us as to why is because of the way that we were calling them separatists. They took great umbrage to that. They see themselves as fighting for their rights, their sovereign rights, their political rights, cultural and linguistic rights. But there is also, of course, the counter-argument that one of the reasons, the main reason why we haven't been allowed in is because, though Russia denies this, it has heavy weaponry, so analysts say, close to the contact zone, obviously would be potentially giving positions away. That's how we read it. But at the end of the day, it has become incredibly restrictive to work over there freely. So as a result, all our coverage in the last four or five years now has been from the Ukrainian side of the conflict. 
And from Charles's position, there was only so much he could see. The Russian troop buildup in the region is higher than at any time since 2014. Russia will soon have more than 120,000 troops. U.S. intelligence agencies say a multi-front offensive could happen early next year. And the spokesperson for Russia's foreign ministry, Maria Zakharova, is claiming Ukraine has deployed 125,000 troops. According to some reports, the number of Ukrainian troops in the conflict zone has already reached 125,000 people. And this, if you are not aware, is half of the entire composition of the armed forces of Ukraine. In the period of time that we were there most recently, we saw no major evidence of 125,000 Ukrainian troops to their side of the line of control. But Charles did see some Ukrainian soldiers. He was with them, down in the trenches, right there on the front lines. So in the last 10 minutes we've heard, it sounds like a lot more small arms fire coming from the direction of Donetsk airport. The commander is taking us up to a forward observation post a lot closer to separatist positions. When they get there, it's raining. There's not much to see. But the shooting continues. Some of the soldiers describe what's going on. It's sporadic shooting from both sides because we can't see anything even using night vision. When we say shooting, we mean shooting into no man's land at no particular target. But it's important to prevent taking advantage of the fog and rain. Visibility is zero. I recommend you leave this place now. Certainly what was evident, speaking to soldiers, commanders on the Ukrainian side, they do seem a lot more confident, a lot better trained. We have a lot of things to improve on. The trainers had great combat experience, so we learned a lot from them. We know that uh, NATO countries have been involved in training them over recent years. We know that they have got new equipment, better weaponry. We know that Turkey has been supplying them with drones from which they can launch missiles. We know that the U.S. has given what is described as defensive weapons to the Ukrainian side. But uh, there was a, a sense, certainly, in speaking to commanders there, that they are more confident, but no less concerned, because no matter what the West can give them or has given them, they are seriously outgunned. The Russians have better kit, and there's a lot more of them. I joined the army because of the injustice. Our people are forgetting there's a war going on in our country. If this conflict does escalate militarily, Charles says the area north of Crimea and here in eastern Ukraine, or Donbass, where Russia launched its invasion almost eight years ago, will likely be facing the brunt of the fighting again. This it does seem to be a certain consensus amongst military analysts. Crimea has suffered decades of water shortages, but uh, things got a lot worse after Russia's annexation in 2014 when the Ukrainians, pro-government or pro-Ukrainian activists, began damming the North Crimean Canal since 2014. That dam that was then supplemented by a dam that the government has built now. So that water has been turned off, and we understand that 
there have been major water shortages, rationing in Crimea. So there is a feeling that Putin could try and take control of this canal. And of course, his reason would be, well, I'm just protecting Russian citizens in Crimea. And the feeling is that moment, if you like, you would see the shelling increase by the separatists in the Donbass region, which would be responded to by the Ukrainian side. And then Russia again would use as a pretext, well, look, we are going to protect Russian citizens inside Donbass. And bear in mind that in the last few years, Russia has been giving Russian passports to Ukrainians that want Russian citizenship inside uh, the Donbass region. It was believed that around about 600,000 people now have Russian passports. So many of the military analysts say, well, yes, then Russia would go in and take full control of that area of Donbass. So those left in eastern Ukraine, according to Charles, are at the very least concerned. In Kiev, Ukraine's capital, the feeling is different. The initial shock is over and the war is just part of life, just like the pandemic is part of life. You may remember that voice, Mansur Mirovalev. He's a journalist based in Kiev. It's great to have you on the podcast again. Thank you. We are reaching you in Kiev right now, where you've been reporting about this military buildup on the borders of Ukraine and Russia. I've been hearing the term recent buildup a lot, but we were talking about this in April, which is eight months ago now. So what's changed? I think uh, Putin cried wolf too many times. In the spring, it all felt pretty scary. And then uh, didn't end with a bang, but uh, with a whimper was the line from T.S. Eliot. This time, people just don't give a damn anymore. Do you think that there is a disconnect at all between people who are in Kiev and those who are in the border regions? You are right. There is uh, absolutely a huge divide, a huge disconnect between the people on the border and the people in Kyiv. The feeling here in Kyiv is that the war is far away. The war is not as fierce, not as intense as uh, seven years ago. And uh, people here, they've grown too cynical, they've grown too immune. And this is a way of coping with the emotional stress. So why is Russia's President Vladimir Putin amassing these troops? Because Russia has denied that it is planning an invasion. I think Putin has become one of the bad boys who still wants to attract the attention of the most beautiful girl in class. But instead of just coming up to her and saying, you know, here's a flower and you look great today, he does something awful. This is his way of saying, hey, look, I'm here, look at me. He craves this attention from the West. But Mansour says what Putin doesn't crave is the presence of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Putin's biggest concern is NATO military bases in Ukraine. Each NATO state, which includes a lot of Europe, Canada, and the U.S., agrees to uphold Article 5. When a NATO member state is attacked, the rest of the alliance must come to its defense. And more than a decade ago, in 2008, Ukraine got an invitation to join NATO. If Ukraine joins, 
that could potentially pit the world's most heavily armed countries, Russia and the U.S., against each other. Putin doesn't just consider Ukraine part of Russia's turf. He considers it the most essential neighbor because, sorry for this boring history lesson, because what is now Russia politically, linguistically, culturally, it originated from what is now Ukraine. So when he spoke to Biden, he talked about the red lines. And to him, the biggest red line is NATO presence in Ukraine. He repeatedly said that Russians and Ukrainians are one nation. He wants to keep Ukraine under his thumb. He just will not let it go. Do you see Ukraine joining NATO? Ukraine is as big as France. Its population is uh, officially 43 million. Ukraine is too big, too polarized, and too diverse to be swallowed by NATO. Just yesterday, December 16th, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky met with NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg, who reiterated NATO's support for Ukraine. NATO stands with Ukraine. All allies support Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And we do not recognize Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea. Like all sovereign states, Ukraine has the right to defend itself as enshrined in the United Nations Charter. NATO will continue to give you practical support. But Charles says that support without full membership doesn't mean as much. Of course, Ukrainians are also deeply hamstrung in how they can defend themselves, not yet being members of NATO. NATO is not legally bound to protect them. The U.S. president has already said that there will be no boots on the ground in the eventuality, in the worst case scenario, of there being a Russian push. U.S. President Joe Biden challenged the reporter, asking him about U.S. military intervention. Are you ready to send American troops into war and go into Ukraine to fight Russians on their battlefield? which is leaving Ukraine in a tough spot, Charles says. Increasingly, the Ukrainian government seems very weak, uh, potentially unable to cope, not only now, but certainly if there was to be any further escalation and a push by the Russians to take what many people believe they actually want. Not all of Europe understands what's happening on our borders. Standing alongside the Secretary General, Zelensky voiced frustration with Europe's response. When somebody comes to us with a visit, I always say to them, come with me to Donbass. When you come to the front line, you can see what is happening. You can see the people, you can see not just the military, but you can see the civilians, you can talk to them. And you know, there were villages and little towns which were occupied and now they have freed. They understand the difference, they understand what is key, the price of war, they understand the price of life. And it wasn't just Europe and NATO. Zelensky was pleading with Russia as well. It's important that Russia should understand this price. That's my view. But, Charles says... As long as Zelensky continues to demand eventual NATO and EU membership, the more angry President Putin and Russia becomes. It's like red rag to a bull. So who's winning? Putin has done very well in 
if you like, dodging some of the pressures that the sanctions that were put on after the annexation of Crimea. He's managed to benefit from high gas prices. He's managed to, according to some analysts, not play the foreign currency markets with uh, as much risk. Hundreds of billions of dollars in, in, in foreign assets at his hand. He's got no political opposition. So he is in a very strong position, potentially. So at this stage, um, many will say that uh, a lot, of, you know, he, the master chess player that President Putin is has all the major cards in his hand. And in the meantime, the people of Novelsky are trying to carry on. The Ukrainian soldiers are constantly here. They seem to do rotations every six months or so. With the fear of war ahead and a military force, they worry won't be able to protect them. I was frightened in 2014 when the house was first shelled, but I was with my sick husband. This time I was alone and overwhelmed with fear. People are utterly exhausted. I think the UN is expecting next year, 2022, up to three million people in that region to be needing some form of humanitarian assistance. People are trying to take care of what they have left, their homes, their land, their animals. And for some, that means making difficult choices. Just as we were leaving the village or, or about to leave, myself and Katya, our fantastic fixer, we were passing other people who were collecting their things, moving out, trailers being towed by tractors with their belongings. And we saw this horse that initially we thought was untethered and wild. And as we approached it, a Russian man, the owner, called out to us and said, please buy my horse. I can't take him or her with me. And I'm too afraid of, of leaving it here because I just do not know when the shelling could start again. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Ruby Zeman, Priyanka Tilvey, Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Our story editor is Tom Finton. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. And Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. We'll be back.